welcome back to the Chats with Creatives podcast. This week, I'm having a yarn with Declan Ferber-Gillick, an Aranda man from Central Australia. Declan is the writer, producer and actor behind the Green Room award-winning production, Big House Dreaming. His practice spans writing, theatre, music, rap, community education and mentoring. We have a conversation today about Declan's journey into the arts, how important collaboration and solidarity is for communal growth and connection. We chat heaps on Declan's varied writing and performance experiences, the success of Big House Dreaming, his new piece coming out at MTC called Jackie. Stay tuned, super exciting. His passion for rap and poetry getting him through Melbourne's extended lockdown and how deeply connected you can feel to people just by sharing and being vulnerable. Uh, I'm an Aranda man from Central Australia on my father's side, Alice Springs, Mbantua, Mbantua and Mboringa, which is north of Alice Springs, are my family homelands. I live on Jaja Run country in so-called Victoria at the moment. And I would like to acknowledge and pay respect today to the land that I'm currently on and where I have lived off and on in the last couple of years, which is Bunrong Woiwurrung country, uh, Wurundjeri country, part of the Kulin Nation, around the bay in the area known as Nam, Melbourne. Pay respect to the elders and the young people and the communities and community organisations and, and leaders of this country and give honour and respect to um, this place as a as a living and a living space and a place of thriving for many, many thousands of years. And I'm privileged to live on Wurundjeri country when I do. And it's my honor to acknowledge and pay respect to the local Aboriginal community uh, whom have always made me feel very accepted and welcome here. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks Declan. How's your day been? It's been a pretty good day. Mm. Yeah, really exciting day actually. You came in with a lot of energy yeah. in the best way. I had to build <laughs> that energy up to, dr- to ride through the rain. Yeah. So I was like, I was on a mission and the mission was just to get through the rain. <laughs> and then I was, so I was soaking wet when I got here. And it only seemed to rain for my bike trip. Mm-hmm. It just was <laughs> teasing me. Yeah, I had just came from a meeting with director Mark Wilson and designers Emily and Christina looking at the design for Jackie, the, my play that will be on later this year. And it's so exciting to sit in 3D space and, and talk with creative designers about how this show, what, it, what is the design that will match this text to, its, to the place in which it's performed. It's really exciting. Mm. So how about we go back to where your creative journey began? I mean, you're, you're a writer, a dramaturg, uh, an actor, a musician, a performer, creative. Where does it kind of come from? Yeah, I think that's a. I think that is a. That is a pretty big question, and it's you know, its terms are both specific and really general, which is like it's a good good way to enter. I I guess I decided to become a committed artist or become a, a creative, make it my full time pursuit when I was about twenty six. So that's about that's about four or five years ago, and around that time I started writing started trying to write and learning to write and teaching myself to write dialogue and and work for performance and dramatic performance work for theater and that's what I kind of knuckled down and said this is going to be my my main pursuit is I'm going to learn what the hell this whole like you know storytelling thing is when it's theatrical in nature 
and I applied for the Masters in Writing for Performance at the BCA, which I did in 2017. And yeah, from there, I did that for a year, finished it under under the tuition and tutelage of one uh, Raimondo Cortese, who I'm sure listeners might be familiar with. <laughs> and I did that course and then I came out of that swinging, like I just went, oh, well, I learned a lot, still don't know really what I'm doing, but wrote a play for school. It was crazy and, and it went really well. Some Maybe some listeners know The Great Emu War. And that was, that was the first kind of play I wrote. It was for uni. And then I came out of there, had a reading of that at Melbourne Theatre Company. And from there, started talking with Jenny Medway at Melbourne Theatre Company pretty regularly and forming a, the basis of a relationship that became a, has become an extremely important and, and beautiful and valued relationship. But she kind of showed me how I might engage with the MTC in a way that felt safe and appropriate. And that was my journey into those kind of halls. But before that happened, straight out of school, I made a show... 2018 called Big House Dreaming. I made that through Deadly Fringe, which is a combined supported effort between um, Ilbidri and Melbourne Fringe. And they gave me what felt to me like a lot of money. <laughs> and now I look at it, it wasn't very much money. It was more most money I'd ever conceived of for making a production. And I worked with Mark Wilson on that and we made the show in roughly six months. And it, it just did really well. We had a fantastic team. Um, we had a fantastic space to work in. And we, we worked with Susanna Day who helped us to um, basically did like a bit of an associate producer job like or support I self-produced the show but she and Mark kind of tutored me through that process and we had it we had a really beautiful first season what crazy like in terms of like how shaky it felt when we put it on the stage I'm kind of going into the minutiae of that now so the biggest story is that show did really well and we had an opportunity to tour that following years so we've toured that show uh, I wrote another play in the meantime for obituary and I've been working on this play for the MTC for about three years. So that's what's happened since around 2015-16. Prior to that I was making art, but I was doing it in a kind of pretty free-spirited kind of bohemian style, writing slam poetry, doing a bit of rap, playing folk songs, also doing an arts law degree full-time. I lived in Melbourne and I was performing a bit, doing more political speeches like kind of polemic stuff like always poetic polemics as though as well like I spoke at a few rallies and was writing starting to write more about you know situations and experiences in my life and my family's life and connected to stories from back home like back in central Australia and like about my aboriginal experience there and starting to write a bit more and a bit more in a sort of protest way you know my slam poetry always had a kind of a try to have a sting in the tail I guess so I was doing that for my early 20s writing songs before that writing always written rap but there's always been a kind of an impulse to say something or do something or draw something or do a bit of visual art as well an, an impulse to mark something you know mm. and I come from language family you know I come from both my mum's side and my dad's side of family are deeply invested in not only community development but language and oral and linguistic forms of communication and dialogue and storytelling Irish Catholic family on mum's side very oral very storytelling people networks of family and story and culture and those kinds of yarns on dad's side of the family and of course you know black fellows sit around and talk about family for a whole day you know like half of what we talk about often is how's family doing and who knows who and that's just that requires you know immense kind of memory you know memory of kinship networks and communications and that kind of thing and um yeah so both language rich cultural traditions and my mum was a radio journalist and that kind of gave me a start she taught me, you know, how to communicate effectively and how to 
how to use language and use language to my benefit. And so I always wanted to achieve things with language and, you know, excelled in writing and stuff at school and speaking. And all that kind of has just been kind of refined and refined. Everything I do is always kind of like linked with social struggles, community development, thinking about change on a large scale, thinking about the issues and problems in within my own communities and more often than not, ultimately thinking about the Aboriginal struggle and movement in this country and what my place in that is and where we've come and where we're going next and and that kind of thing. And so that's, you know, my creative journey kind of began pretty early, but it took the form of political discussions, community development talk, policy discussion, and I just grew up thinking and talking about that stuff and listening to that stuff. And so it found its way into my voice and my dramaturgy and my storytelling and and, and what I ultimately want to try to say about and to the world. The last four or five years have been like a whirlwind that I was ready for, like came at me really hard, just like freelancing and learning how to manage my own time and what projects to take on and how to value my own time and also mentor. So I work with young people, sort of always have. I started teaching in various capacities since I left high school. And so... It not only makes sense to me in a community and developmental and legacy sense to work with young people to try to transfer some knowledge and capacity and methodology about storytelling and voice, but it also feeds me and really keeps me connected to compassion amongst other things and really helps to keep me honest and grounded in my creative experience and like brings me back to my values and actually gives me a real sense of wonder working with young people. So I've really tried to keep that going throughout since I finished school, you know, mm. and um, it's hard and it can be incredibly rewarding. So that's my creative journey has always been linked to my, my education journey and my political journey, I guess. I want to ask a question. Great. All right. When does your creative journey begin? I mean, I've been a performer since I was young, like young teens and I, and I would, want to tell stories and perform for people but I don't feel like creatively I started clicking into anything solid until I left home. I left home at 18 and moved from Brisbane to Melbourne on my own and and started in a weird way being incredibly lonely in Melbourne and not knowing anyone and not studying and not working. I kind of started to go down this hole of like why why did I come here if I am not performing and so I had to start questioning like what am I wanting to say or who, whose stories am I wanting to tell why am I doing it I'm, a, I'm in a really privileged position that I could leave home and afford to come and live in Melbourne and that I move through the world as as a white cis woman and that gives me so much privilege and I and I was really questioning why I needed to be telling people about me or my place or my story if if I'm in such a position of privilege it's like a story that we've heard before so I think a lot of my art and my creative things come from I guess kind of questioning what is it that I say that can add to society that hasn't already been said my passion is to tell stories about women because that's you know, I identify as a woman and I, through this kind of creative process of going to school, I went to VCA, I really wanted to like hone a craft and I think subconsciously really like find a voice and understand why I had this desire to perform and why I wanted to tell stories when I felt kind of like 
it's not my place. I've always had this battle of like, it's not for me to tell this story or it's not for me to, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an internal battle that I have quite a lot. And I, I'm kind of like really working on at the moment, trying to move away from this white guilt that I have and that kind of confusion in my head of being born into quite a privileged position and not understanding why or how to utilize this place that I am in or this privilege that I've been given to make change. And during VCA, I did this production that was a completely female non-binary cast of a Shakespeare play, a classic. And I think that for me, something kind of changed when I did that because I was like, oh, there's a bunch of wonderful actors from literally all over the world there was something really empowering about that and working with an entirely female non-binary crew that I started to realize that's kind of where I stand I think that's where I can that's where my voice is valid I guess because that's my experience so kind of had that bubbling under the surface and uh, left VCA and went into this tour where I felt completely undervalued as not only a performer but as a human um, and that presented itself in in kind of different ways of, of being ignored, being physically touched in ways that I had asked not to be and like there was violence and I was walking away from shows with bruises and my voice wasn't being heard when I was saying that this was inappropriate or this was not something that I think is the way that other actors, let alone a woman in a cast with other men, should be treated. And... From that experience, I completely lost my voice. I lost my ability to believe in myself and and feel like I was valued at, at all. And since then, I've just been trying to build myself back up. And that's, that's why I started Chats with Creators because I, I felt like that my experience needed to be shared in a way that didn't where it was welcome yeah and with other artists who maybe had similar experiences if not the exact same experience or with people who were just generally empathetic human beings so we could have discussions about what to do in that situation or if that is what's happening in our industry how can we change it or who are the people that we can go to that aren't going to treat us in that way and that's kind of changed and developed into being more of a open flowing conversation about art and creativity rather than focusing in on how can we change this industry because that's it's needed on such a such a wide and such a large level of change that you, you start by getting connected right yeah it's a it's a blind spot on a, on a scale of magnitude mm. the way we think about creativity in the arts yeah it's a great platform it's a great platform to have set up so that we can talk and speak openly with one another and 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 to share that and I, that's why I love podcast as a form for that for that reason I love long form conversational material it's it's beautiful mm. so thank you for setting it up thanks for being here I'm a big believer in peer support mm. also known as solidarity you know mm. the basic glue of any collective advance is like understanding each other working together celebrating one another's efforts and achievements and like um i've had people fucking do that for me mm. because they love it and because they believe in it and we've got to fucking help each other up not up like you fell over but like up to the wherever you're going next you know 
there's not enough chats with other artists, you know? I'm often like, oh, everyone's busy. Everyone's working on projects. We don't get time to like have non-productive conversation, you know? Mm. Like it's always like we're making a thing, we're doing a thing, I'll see you when I see you and we make that thing, which is great. It's how our industry works. Mm. But like let's actually sit down and have a yarn about who you are and who I am and like, you know, why we do this thing because capitalism makes us forget and turns us into producers of commodities. Even within the indie world, time is always this factor of production. You know, efficiency is always this factor of production. And a conversation like this isn't profitable, which is why it's to the industry, which mm. is why it's like the gold. I made work throughout lockdown, mm-hmm. but obviously didn't perform any plays. Mm. But I worked on plays. I made some video material made some visual material, made a lot of music material. Um, So I just kind of like, and also had a bit of work teaching online, which was great because it's great. And also because I got a bit of an income from it as well. But yeah, it's all the performancey stuff went on hold, but like I just kind of kept obsessively making art with whatever I could find, Mm. which meant that I was like, oh, no plays. Oh, well, no, 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 I'll obsess about something else and make it some other thing. Put myself through some other intense process. And um, <laughs> so when the theatre's opening, I was like, cool, theatres are open again. Well, let's put a play on, you know. <laughs> yeah, but also trying to work on theatre stuff, as maybe you'd know via Zoom, is that's a whole other thing. It's so tough. It can teach you some really interesting stuff because like, you lose a lot of your rhythms. Mm. So it's like something that sounds like it works really well because of the rhythms if you like just hear the text, it's like, oh, it wasn't working as well as I thought it was. There wasn't as much in there. Yeah. So you kind of strip it right back, which for actors, that's not that interesting. But for writers, you go, what would it be like if I could just, just, just hear the text? That kind of transparent lens. It's hard to do that with actors in a room because actors want to act, right? Yeah. So like if you force them to break the rhythms up, then you go, here is a piece of text, Zoom break. Here is another piece of text. You can learn a lot about that. But it's not nourishing like being in a room with other creatives. Yeah, there's something so like fulfilling about being in a space with other people. So what were you doing over Zoom? Were you doing Jackie stuff? Did a reading of Jackie, mm-hmm. met with some designers, met with Mark pretty regularly, Mark Wilson, mm. call him my theatre yes. husband. I, <laughs> I love Mark. In the theatre world, Mark and I more or less go everywhere together. I wouldn't have it any other way. But, yeah, met with him. Yeah, did one development, one development online with actors. That's the main thing. And they're just, just meetings are hard, like, like everyone else had. How has it been working or creating a piece kind of to be put on at MTC? Oh, it's been, um, it's been a real journey and I knew it was going to be from the moment I accepted the offer of the residency there as part of Next Stage. Writing the play I've written has been a really long process and it mm. began with at the end of 2018 um, I started residency there and I've learned a lot. I've learned not only a lot about my own process and writing, but I've learned a lot about writing to a commission but protecting the ideas. Writing to a commission without writing to a form or using and adapting to a form that is obviously there because MTC provides a form whether you like it or not. You're in a very particular form and institution, so you're writing, you know you're writing from that. But knowing that early and approaching the writing in that way really empowered the process, being like, all right, if this is my probable audience, if this is my probable stage, if this is the institution inside which this work's going to exist, then they go into the process, you know. So I wrote, very much I wrote the play from within MTC but around MTC. <laughs> the dramaturgy wraps around the institution, put it that way. 
Yeah. Has it been received well by those? Yeah. People have really backed it. That's People great. Have really backed it. And it's been times when it's been awful. Mm. Writing can be absolutely horrendous. It's it can be a horrendous assault on the self and the spirit. And hopefully, if done well, the assault can lead to an emergence of some kind of truth of the heart. But yeah, there's been some dark nights of the soul writing this play, and I couldn't have done it without the the solidarity and support of of my collaborators. And you know, MTC have done you know, a good thing in that they have supported me for a year, you know, on a basic, fairly modest income, which for me as an artist is like a pretty healthy income really, so that I could write the play, put food on my table, pay my bills, travel home to see family when I needed to, do that basic shit, that basic life maintenance stuff, do my community work, do my teaching work, a lot of which is unpaid, and I can I can give it in an unpaid way, partly because I've had, you know, an income from an institution. So part of it is like, cool, if I'm going to get this money from an institution that supports me, it means I can keep living the life I want to live, which involves unpaid community-based labour that I love, you know. And so it's just a really good argument for why artists and workers and, and, and people need and deserve a basic income. And, yeah, I'm really grateful for that and it's meant that my life isn't, skipping bus fares and eating sardines out of a can and having a cold winter, you know, like, so that, that is, um, that's a modest luxury to have been able to be supported to write and go through hard, hard times in my writing. So I'm really, really grateful for that. And, you know, more artists need and deserve it. I wonder how different, how it's different working on something like Big House Dreaming compared to Jackie at the MTC. Like Big House Dreaming, that's that's like your baby, isn't it? Like there wouldn't have been the same considerations as putting on, like if you're putting Big House Dreaming on, if you're making it from the ground up as an MTC show, it would be so different, surely. Yeah, it would be because the intended audience is different. Mm. And, you know, there's part of being a writer that's like, don't think about your audience. That allows you to kind of like write freely. But being a theatre maker is being a communicator. And if you don't know your audience, then you can't communicate with them. I would write one play for community education performance season, which I've done. That play is not trying to achieve the same things as if I'm writing for STC or Melbourne Fringe. They're all distinct audiences mm. in a way. And also a play, hopefully, can an can and should hold its own and be able to be reinterpreted for multiple spaces and multiple times and multiple multiple geographies, you know. That's what's powerful about a play as a play. Because I work in development closely with the person who most times is going to direct my play and our, our dramaturgy is so shared, he's already building a mental aesthetic, a mental set of directions from... He doesn't share them with me necessarily, lets me just write, but work so closely with, with, my, with my director as a collaborator that... It's such a shared process. Mm. And so together we think about what stage is this? What audience is this? What will they respond to? Are they going to respond to being shouted at dramaturgically, like getting ideas thrown in their face? Will they swallow them? Or do we need to bury that a little bit more in subtly within the action? Or do we need to just hint at it? Do we want a death scene on stage? Do we just want to hint to it? Does a character deserve to be crucified in this, you know, like really torn apart in this play or is that something for a different stage or season? What ideas is this the best place to, to, to work on transmitting? But then again, you know, we're about to do Big House Dreaming at the Arts Centre, which is a bigger 
space and a different audience. Such a different audience to like a to fringe, fringe original. Festival, yeah. yeah, this will be the fourth season. We believe the play hold can hold its own on a on a main stage. You haven't changed it much or at all. No, not really. Some minor minor text changes mm. as we've been through the seasons, mm. but more or less it's it's the same show. Different cast. We had Sahil okay. Saluja in the first season. Yeah. Beautiful actor. Beautiful. He did that role so well. And then we've had Deshaun Phillips in the following seasons. And again, a beautiful actor with a different set of skills and techniques, but has brought such generosity to that, to the main role. We love having him in the company and we'll always love Sahil for that first season. And I know that play's got a real place in his heart. It's hard to lose a... um a committed and, and loving collaborator from a baby like that, but it happens. Mm. You get an offer. Actors want to act, you know. Actors want to learn. Actors want to grow. New directions. Take an mm. opportunity. So Big House Dreaming is about Aboriginal youth justice. Yeah. Do you find it difficult when you're in a season to put it on each night? Oh, it's utterly taxing. It's mm. utterly, mm-hmm. it's utterly draining. Because I yeah. guess I mean I, I it's so close to your heart and so close to your life that. I imagine separating yourself from it kind of almost isn't something you can do. Like I know as an actor I can step into a role and then curtains come down and I yeah. separate myself from that. And There are points in the play that I will never be separate from mm. and the play was written thus and that stuff's hard. That stuff where I'm telling a story that I know to be true, that others don't know to be true and has always been true for me and will always be true for me when people can leave the theatre, those are parts that it's really hard. Continuing to put it on means that more people can hear the story and learn from it. That's all. That's obviously the trade, you know. Mm. And I actually at points have said this will be the last season of the play mm-hmm. because it's not a thing that I can just do and do and do. Yeah. But there's been maybe talk of putting the play on in the future, maybe next year or the year after, and talk of taking it to more places and maybe even seeking, you know, an international audience. And I know that this play within an international audience who have a shared, you know, colonial history and have a shared youth justice history, you know, thinking most notably places like New Zealand or Canada or the US, anywhere where there are significant tensions between police, the justice system and like Indigenous and black people, you know, there's a there's a sense of like honour at the possibility of maybe being able to go and tell that story in another place where it matters. And so... I'm now living in a way that's like better supported than I was. Like I'm more grounded. I've got a home now. I was like really, really transient for a lot of the last couple of years um, and feeling like pretty distorted in where I belonged and just tired all the time because I was moving a lot and I feel a lot more grounded now. I've got a, like quite a kind of stable living situation and I've got the show now has a strong family around it. It has It's a, it, it's a container, you know, it's a strong container and there's a lot of trust and love in that, in that company. And so... With that in mind, knowing that, okay, if, I'm gonna, if I was going to do this show again somewhere else, I know I've got a home and a community and some people to come back to. Whereas I was like, oh, I'm in this kind of like weird house. I know I'm going to be moving soon. Like the healing that I feel I need to do after I put on that show, it requires some really cool, soothing balm. And I now feel like I have that balm. And so I'm like, yeah. I can probably spiritually give again to make that show if it's going to like go where it needs to go. But it's not an endless thing. And it's, it's not a story I want to tell forever. My dream is to maybe do a few more seasons and then get it published. And, you know, I believe and I hope that it's like a, a play that, you know, I mean, schools already are looking at it, you know, coming to and coming to see the show. We've got schools who are doing it in a class. My dream would be that it could somehow get onto like a curriculum, you know, yeah. 
because as a play, it's actually an easy play to read. You know, it doesn't require a super sophisticated understanding of drama or action. It's monologic in form and it's storytelling in form. And it's, you know, it is, it is clearly a play that is action and it's clearly a play where characters go on arcs. And, you know, you have to have a basic understanding of how theatrical story works. But you could give that to a group of year 10s and have it taught by someone who wasn't a dramatically trained person and it would still land because the ideas are clear on the page, the language is clear on the page, it's short. That's, that's, so that's why that would be a dream of mine. That makes, that makes the contribution more lasting, you know, that impact without me having to, like, perform this forever. Trying to have the biggest impact in a way that is the most careful to the soul, you know, as someone who's trying to like strategically look at social issues in particular, you know, yeah. without just burning out. What are the things that kind of help you heal from those moments? Uh, is it just being with family, being with a community? Is it music? Are there certain things that you go to or that you, you might go to this time around now that you have a more secure base? Yeah, I think like, um, well, after this season, mm-hmm. I'm going home to um, Central Australia and I'm going to see my dad. And he hasn't been well. And it's really hard that I live down here at the moment because if I didn't have commitments, I'd be, I'd be living with him at the moment. You know, that'll be both deeply nourishing and healing and satisfying and challenging because family's challenging and yeah. going home to Alice Springs is challenging for me in ways. And, yeah, I think in general this show, after doing it, really requires a lot of time with, like, long conversations with friends, long, unhurried times chill that kind of processing and debriefing that's like cyclical rather than a dump hang out with mark a bit for a few days and over that time talk about the show talk about the issues then go have vietnamese food and go for a walk go for a bike ride talk about the show again yeah lots of rest when i can get it often i've just like gone straight into project i've learned over time how to rest while i work as well but yeah like swimming fresh water going out into the in the country like bushwalks hiking as just went for a hike down in Tassie, went down there for a couple of weeks. I try to get out of the city or out of town and go, go bush a bit after I do a heavy work like that because mm. it's just the basic principle is you got to get back to the land. Like, you know, what, no matter whatever else is kind of going on, the land's always going to be there for you. It understands. Like being on country is, a, is, a, is an exchange of, like, trusting quiet that human beings don't really often give one another and you often, don't often come across in the city. So some kind of like re-equilibriising, re-equanimising, basically finding balance by being with friends. And It's really nice to hear that you do that for yourself. I've tried to. I've had to, I've had to train myself too. Yeah, I think like it's a really, it's rare for people to be like, no, now I'm going to take some time to rest because that like – there's a need for producing things always. Like especially when you're trying to, in inverted commas, get a career going. Yes. Whatever that even means. Yeah. But like. And you have, you have like work, several shows going at the moment. So like you'll do this and then like, can you do even have time to rest? But knowing that in your, in like, you know, that there are certain things that you can do that can like connect you back to land and, and send to yourself. And, and you can't work good. for long, long periods of time without a break without, because then when you have the break, it's a crash break that yeah. might like, that you're not in control of. Yeah. And you get sick. I used to get sick because I didn't know how to stop and have a rest, whether that was partying or whether it was um, writing, working, making, creating. Mm. Yeah, early 20s it was like you can't socialise for like four days straight and do a law degree (laughs) and try to perform a couple of nights a week 
and get drunk four nights a week. Like you just can't do that for a long time without eventually just falling in a heap and trying to start a fire in in the cold, dark cave with no light. And done that a handful of times. Burnouts of you know ended up being like oh, I'm like I'm deep in my depression again. Okay, long road out. Mm-hmm. So if you can prevent, if I can prevent myself getting there. And I've had to learn that as a discipline and with good support from like therapists and stuff, you can actually like cycle for a long time. The sun doesn't need to rest. It just, it follows a, it follows a cycle and it's in its own rhythm. And if you can find an organic rhythm that suits what you're trying to create or produce or how you're trying to live, you know, it's still hard times, but you're not trying to grow something in soil that can't grow in, you know, you got to nurture and nourish the the creative instinct and the self and the soul as it goes through its cycles and so it can bear the harms that it has to bear without deflating we live in australia like this country is beautiful this country is extraordinarily rich and beautiful and it's the ultimate charging pad do you have a like a daily practice so pretty much every day for like the last four years or so Listeners might be familiar with morning, uh, with um, Artist Way. It's a 12-week, 12-step guided process in recovering and or nourishing and or expanding the creative process. So it's about how do I take care of and take pride in and learn to love and trust my creative spirit. I did that when I was like 26 the first time. I've done it once or twice since. And um, you learn a bunch of skills. You learn a bunch of ways of talking to yourself. You learn a heap of different ways to just develop your own safe, environment in which to grow and work it's a really whole it's a whole practice and one of the things that you do consistently is you write three pages of stream of consciousness every morning as soon as you wake up and that's called the morning pages and you do that religiously you know and i've I've done that more or less for the last four years four or five years i get up every morning and i write three pages of stream of stream of consciousness a4 paper and you just do it. it teaches you so much so i do that in the last year or so, I've developed a meditation practice. So I, I do anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes meditation following that each morning pretty consistently. And I record results, whatever that means, changes. Like just <laughs> not in a not in a like super studious or like data way, but yeah. just as an observed way. Because anything that you do consistently over a long time, if you observe changes, you learn about yourself, you know. You learn just by observing and recording. And that's what the page is about. Page is about what do I say about my life when I don't feel to myself? And then I read it every six months and I go, wow, look, a map through my grief. Oh, look, wow, a map through how I hated that thing and it was holding me back. And then actually I learned to love something and it opened a new door for me. Those kind of unconscious processes, to have a map of that, you are your own mentor and guide when you do that. So I do that. It keeps me super balanced. I don't have to like, I've chosen not to and I don't feel like that I've had to like medicate for my mental health diagnoses. And I medicated briefly for about six months, um, used antidepressants and they got me out of a really fucked up place. Mm. And then I got off them because in the time that I used them, I had built good practices for myself. I maintain practices so that I stay well and stay reliant upon processes that I control rather than pharmaceuticals that other people make. Mm. That's been the big one. And these things, the morning pages in particular, really just fuels the creative process and helps you to understand what you need in your creative process. Do I need a day writing, rewriting this character? Do I need a development where I've got to pay for four actors? Do I need to go and write some poetry? Or do I need to go and sit on the beach and stare at nothing for a day? Because that's a creative practice. Do I need to sleep in this morning? 
that's a creative practice. Do I need to go and have dinner with my family? That's a creative practice. And it's not just about how do I meet the deadline, you know? Mm. How do I make the best art? How do I say what I really want to say? It's also about what is the personal need now, you know? Learn not to neglect the personal. There's this, there's this fucking myth that's like it's been around for a while and we need to get rid of it, which is like this kind of like the successful artist is one who has sacrificed everything, including the self or their mm-hmm. practice. And it's like, yeah, cool. If you want to die when you're 27, if you want to like like leech yourself of of your kind of like personal health and if you want to like not have a social or community life, if you want to like have this myth of like I live to work and I work to live and I, and I do that in a studio and I'm like ruthless with my with my output. It's like, yeah, because I've fucking tried that. I have done that and that's not a long-term, that's not a long-term strategy. There's these, you know, there's these things. They're the basic ones. I've got some other little sort of things, tricks that I do as well, but yeah, they've taught me a lot. And when I'm writing, rather than dramaturging or designing or learning my lines, because as a theatre maker, it's not like being a novelist where you're just, you're just writing. You can just write day after day after day. It's more active. It's material. It's in the world. It's collaborative. So a lot of being an artist is going to some meetings, you know, mm. having a bit of a conversation about the economics of it. How are we going to make this thing happen? Who's going to buy the chicken? Where's the table going to come from? We lost an actor. Oh, well. All that is part of the dramaturgy. We've got to find a new actor. How do we do that responsibly? How do we do that at late notice? How do we pay them well? They're all part of the dramaturgy. They're all part of the creative process. Yeah, but sometimes it's like I've got to go to a birthday party this weekend. I've said no to too many birthday parties. I've got to go to a birthday party and see my friend turning 30. I've got to go meet my friend's baby, you know, like non-negotiables mm. if you want to stay healthy. Exercise. Choosing to be more active than less active, mm. right? It just keeps your body like alive and wanting to participate, right? Mm. <laughs> I don't know the, the intimate nature of physicality and like one's body as the landscape or tool for sharing and teaching mm. Potentially super confronting, you know. Yeah, there's a hugely. Lot, there's a lot in that as having your body in your work. And actors, you know, that's a big part of what you guys do. I mean, it is what you do. It's your instrument, you know, mm. your body and your breath and your voice is your instrument and it's an instrument of self, you know. It mm. is. You're there. So it's beautiful about what actors do, the generosity of giving themselves to a process, mm. not in an abstract way but in an embodied way. Yeah, I would suggest movement to anyone who's, who's in a rut of any kind. Mm. Go out for a walk, mm. read your text for an hour and then go for a walk, let it sink in, connect to your body and breathe for a bit. Mm. Like get out of your head, get into your body and come back. What brings you joy creatively? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, creatively. Um, my immediate response was like writing is a slog, you know, writing mm. is a slog and sometimes it's, it's nice when it comes freely and sometimes you've got to work for it. Inspiration exists, but it's got to find you working, you know. You can't roll it, wait for the inspiration. Steady practice, steady practice. Ah, moment of inspiration, great. Ah, it's gone now. Steady practice, steady practice, steady practice, you know. Though that stuff pays off for me when I'm thinking about as a writer and text-based artist. When I'm working on a scene, mm. Mark and I work my scenes a lot in the writing process and I write a lot of my scenes, a lot of my scenes are two-handed scenes and so we'll just work the characters, work the text, switch characters, do a rewrite, come back, dramaturg it, think about it. And sometimes just when we're really nailing and sort of finessing a scene where it feels like, oh, what if we ended it three lines earlier? What would that do for the conclusion of the scene? Oh, what if we what if we took out three lines between that beat and that beat? Cool, speeds it up. No, 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 leave it in. 
it's really it's a nice little diversionary tactic that the actor can play that kind of process when you read a scene and it's feeling like okay that's the scene that scene is at a place where now we're it's we're happy for it in that fourth draft work it work it work it and when it's it's like it lands when it lands and it's not complete because it's not complete till it's staged but it's like for this process for this moment on this paragraph of this piece of text in this play that's 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 what we want there's this moment in there where we're like oh we're cooking with fire or like yeah that's a spark mm. we got a spark there that is a textually interesting little piece of dialogue that that for me is really joyful and it's so collaborative because there's this tension and chemistry between Mark and I when we're looking and he knows the characters well and I know the characters well and he knows my process well so in terms of being a playwright there's some of the most joyous moments for me is like Ah, yes, and then we talk about that. We talk about the ideas and the dramaturgy of the scene for the next half hour. That's what's super exciting for me and that's why I love and I'm really passionate about collaborative relationship that I've been lucky enough to work with. And that stuff more often than not is that's work that we do because we love it and we choose to and is rarely funded. You know, the, the, the beautiful moments are we're just doing it. We're just up late at night working on a scene because we love it and we can't wait to see where the play is going next and... Yeah, that vocational joy of like I'm doing what I I'm doing what I love. It's hard work. It pays off, you know. So there's that joy, and then there's a the joy of just like writing a writing a funny rap, yeah. <laughs> writing a funny rap and recording it, and it's fun and it's playful, and you know, a couple of good plays on words or a word joke in there, and it's like yeah. that's joyful as well. I love it. Music brings a music brings a non-intellectual joy or a less intellectual joy than playwriting. That's why I make music, and that's why I like music, and it kind of brings me into, you know, physicalizes and tonalizes. The creativity it's not just like text and language you know it's nice that it's so clear in your mind would you like to share a rap would you like to tell me what brings you joy <laughs> I knew you were gonna ask me <laughs> <laughs> um at the moment it's changed a little bit I think because I haven't been in a room with people for so long that what brings me joy is sharing space sharing space with people and just connection I feel like I was so starved of it last year and getting back into spaces and being with people and working on a text or working on anything, a play. I've recently been doing some some classes with actors that I haven't met before and seeing other people work, that's bringing me joy. Mm. Getting back into kind of feeding my soul with the stuff that I love, that's bringing me joy at the moment. Oh, yeah, the, mm. the space, 3D space, hey? Seeing shows is bringing me a lot of joy. So intense. When I came back, yeah. I saw my first show. The work was decent work, but just being in the theatre, I came out, I feel like I'd just done yeah. a heap of cocaine. Yeah. Really, I was just like ding, 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 electric, yeah. zing, zing. I'm, I still feel like that. I'm still like ugh, every mo- every moment I step out and I'm like, yep, 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 yep. I've been missing that and that's what I want. Because it's like, yes, that's why we do this. Yes, yeah. it does work. Yes, it yeah. is real. Yes, it is an ancient form. Yes, it is important. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still here. Yeah. It's still here for a reason. That's what I love about live theatrical storytelling is like film is only like 100 years old. Recorded music is like less than 100 years old. They're new. Putting a film together is like chop, chop, choppy, chop, chop. Theatre is ancient. And I mean theatre when I, you know, I talk about song and ceremony are forms of theatre. Oration, political oration is a form of theatre. It's the most ancient, unbreakable transmission of ideas, thoughts, and it is... There's a there's like a kind of com there's a kind of comfort in that like it ain't going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Even if there's no money, people will make what they are gonna make. They've never stopped, 
and it, it should have money. It should be funded. There's no reason why it can't be and shouldn't be. But making a show, you know, there's making a show and there's like it's telling a story at the dinner table, engaging people, bringing them into your world. They're forms of the oral tradition. So I did a project during lockdown called 16 Bars Every Day for 16 Days. And I did that through my uh, my rap kind of moniker persona nomad. Last year I put out a series of videos where I was making, using beats that I had made or was making. Uh, I was writing it like 16 bars of rap, which for people who don't know that, that's like four beats is a bar and a standard rap verse is 16 bars. A verse, a verse is called a 16 sometimes. So basically I was committing to writing a standard length rap verse every day for 16 days. Uh, and I just, just, one day I just was like, I might as well. And I started doing it. Turned out it was like a lot of work and like quite tiring and especially because I started putting subtitles and like doing a bit of an edit on the video and stuff and it became a whole project and I was absolutely rinsed by the end of it. Um, but they're all up on my Instagram. If people want to have a look at it, K-N-O underscore M-A-D underscore music, Nomad Music. Anyway, a few of those raps I've like kept on the brain and I was writing them like because I was writing them every day. Some of them were reflective of the news cycle and stuff like that. Some of them were like, internal discussion stuff some of them were just like political and then some of them were just like commenting on shit that was happening in the media so some of the references and stuff will be to things that aren't relevant right now but they are from the lockdown period of the news cycle yeah so i'll do one i'll do one of those maybe two we'll see I don't just get it on a boom bap beat, I'ma prove that. I can never lose that heat like a cop chase. You can never do that feat that I do when I get a whole damn room moving they feet. Make a whole Zoom cam meet, all stand to your nan, lose sight of a fam like a two back teeth. You don't wanna see me like a new dad beach. If you wanna be me, better you catch sleep. Dream of this flow like Donald Trump, wishing that his penis will grow. What I mean to be so crass, but I hate leaders who know that they shouldn't be in charge, but they're keeping it so. So give it up, Donald, give it up, priest who fondle, give it up. We don't wanna listen to your shit and apologies. We just wanna see the whole sorry lot toppled back on this trap beat. Made it from scratch like a dad with a scrap heap. Traded for cash if you tag me, making a stack. And the fact is they gave me the sass saying, damn, he's attractive. Cold when I flow like a river into south. If you listen to this mouth, double vision will abound. Then I'm out, here I go. I'm a vision with the get it in a minute. You know I'm hitting the quickest shit around. People reckon how you getting better at rapping. I'm like a practice boy. How does anything happen? I'm a crack this code like a medicine cabinet. I ain't acting coy when I'm setting this standard. Bandit with the notebook that my fan list grows off hook because the mad shit's standard. Well, I am leaving you peas in a pod black eyed like a panda. Did you understand that? I got the juice. You got 5% like Fanta. I cop the truth whenever I pop the top off the booth like a can of Pringles. Woman, a man and trans all demand and he's single. You want to listen to me rap? Well, first go and listen to M. Nas and Three Stacks. Tom Scott, Lauren Hill and the Wu-Tang Clan. KRS as they do they thang. Guru, Primo, Cypress Hill. Yep, doppelgangers on the decks and the mics are ill Respect the lines of those that came before Before I came to shore, ready to fire at will Other rappers getting cooked like captain Step from the battle like, look what happened I brought the beef, he's not the same cattle He got the keys, I got my cage rattled You might have gathered I have a habit of having debates I have a habit of having to have a say And it hasn't mattered if it's a Sabbath or Saturday I'm a habit with your lads, your dad or a magistrate I get animated and say what I want, when I want Whether to Morrison or to Abbott or to Xenophon Penny Wong, better not get offended When I tell it, get some better economic policies If we're gonna get along I'm a commie in my burning heart, my red blood's for the working class, brown skin for the black land under feet. Black man with a plan like Briggs stay undefeated. My ancestors equipped me, wove this code in my blood and it grows within me. No, I'ma go all out like a mojo's native tongue and go pro who's with me. That was one of my favorite ones. When yeah, I went yeah. and listened to all the 16 bars for 16 days. 
that was one of my favorites. That's a fun one. I'm glad you did that one. That was a cool project. Yeah. You know, lockdown was hard. People were like wanting to connect on a really personal level and people, I was quite surprised with who followed and how closely. They were people that I know and love, you know. Mm. I also grew my following online, but like people were just like, dude, it's so nice to see you and hear your voice. Part of the reason I did that was to connect with people like in a really personal way and it, and it paid off. I loved it. It wrecked me, but um, yeah, one of the best things I did in lockdown. Thanks so much for coming in and speaking to me and being open and vulnerable and holding space for me as well. Totally. Well, thanks for thanks for having the chat and sharing sharing your story. I'm always up for the yarn. You know, I'm always up for the yarn. If someone if someone can like offer a part of themselves, I'll always offer a part of myself. Declan is an incredibly multi-talented human. It was an absolute joy to speak with him. Next up, my friends, we have the wonderful Kane Hansen taking us on a deep dive into his creative process and all the exciting things that come with writing and performing your first show solo. Oh my God. Until then, stay creative.